0: Our scripture readings this morning are from Psalm 97 and Isaiah 9, 2 to 7. The theme of today's service is rejoice in the King who is righteous and just. So please listen for how that theme is reflected in our scripture readings.
1: All right, so this is Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad, because your judgment's Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joys on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name.
0: The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. As we light the third candle of Advent, we look back on the coming of Jesus the King, and we rejoice. He is now sitting at his Father's right hand, and the foundations of his throne are righteousness and justice. We also look forward to when he comes again to reign. Last breath.
2: And after the days of mourning were over, all of the kingdom, all of the people, held their breath. A question hung over their heads. What kind of king would the next prince be? Would he be wise like his father, tie his teaching around his neck, and lead with wisdom and goodness? Or would the pampered prince become a careless king? The peace and prosperity of the kingdom was at stake. After all, it can be argued, a kingdom is only as good as its king allows it to be. And unfortunately, as we read in the story, King Rehoboam exchanged the whips of his father For scorpions, and so doing, divided his kingdom in half. A good king is a rare king, and unfortunately, God's people have been plagued with more bad kings than good. And honestly, this is actually the pattern we find in, in, in human history, even today. Like they, they might not go by the same name, and they might have varying degrees of influence, but but it's all the same. Like dictators, the chairman, supreme leader, presidents, or even prime ministers. Kings are still present, for better or for worse, but more often for worse. It's no wonder the skeptics like to say, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's in this backdrop that we read Psalm 97, We're not sure of its author. We know that it was probably compiled by Ezra in the 4th century B.C. We know that it's been read throughout all of Jewish history. It was read during the time of the kings, good kings or bad. It was read during the exile. It was read during the return. It provided hope for the people of Israel. And it provides hope for us now. Because it tells us no matter what king reigns, what ruler or leader we have, Yahweh is king. Yahweh reigns. And that's what we read in the first sentence. It says, um, the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. But what does it mean for Yahweh to reign What does it mean for him to be king? Considering most kings have been bad, why why, why is this person any different? So I I want you to imagine with me this, a person. um, A person who's seen the rise and fall of many kings. He's a man worn out with experience. But deep down, he he still wants what's best for his people. He is a world-weary wise man. Let's call him doubting Elijah, okay? So let's say I approached doubting Elijah and I said, rejoice! Be glad! Yahweh reigns as king. I would imagine he would respond along the lines of, and? So what? Have you not learned? A good king is few and far between. Why should I rejoice? Why should I be glad a king reigns? Kings are absent. They sit on thrones, but don't walk among the people. Kings are corrupt. They wear crowns of pure gold while the streets rot. Kings do not protect their people. They hide behind stone walls where their foes ransack the villages. Kings do not inspire the people. The people sprinkle up praise up front, but behind closed doors, they spit on their portrait kings do not rule long. More time and money is spent on their coronation rather than their administration. Don't tell me a king reigns. Tell me what kind of king reigns. Then I'll decide if he's worth rejoicing over. Oh, but Dali and Elijah, he's not any king. He's God. Oh, so you say he's a god. So What? Let him join the shelf of useless, foolish, or worse, tyrant gods. The Egyptian gods are old news. The Babylonian gods have a temper tantrum. The Greek gods are petty. And the Roman gods are exactly like the Greek gods. Why should I rejoice? Tell me what kind of god reigns. Then I'll decide if he's worth being glad about. And that's what we're going to learn about today. What kind of king is Yahweh? How does he reign? And as we walk through this passage, I want to trace out quickly six truths about his reign. And I want you to see that God's reign, Yahweh's reign, is absolutely worth celebrating over. I want to do this by picking apart. Doubting Elijah's objections, starting with the first. Doubting Elijah objects that kings are absent. You know, they they sit on the throne, but they don't walk among the people. And when you read the first half of verse 2 with me, it says, clouds and thick darkness surround him. You might draw the same conclusion. Uh Uh-huh, he's not there. He's surrounded. You can't even see him. Surely this is speaking about his distance, this separation and to be sure, there is a distinct separation between us and Yahweh. But the, the passage is more uh, nuanced than that. Uh, when you understand the context, like for one, as we see in this verse, um, all the language that is borrowed here is from Exodus 19. You know, the way when God showed up on Mount Sinai with peals of thunder, with earthquake, fire, and and cloud of thick darkness. It's pointing to that picture. There was everything, and the people feared. And yes, obviously, because it was an absolutely terrifying experience. But I don't want you guys to miss the point here. God was there. God was there. Rather than being distant, he was drawing near to his people. He appeared. Bible nerds like to call this a theophany. A phyophony. That is, um, when God manif- physically manifests himself to us. When you can tangibly, tend- tangibly feel his presence. Yes, sure, clouds and thick darkness because only as close as a holy God, can go near a sinful people. But, I mean, he came. And consider this. Isn't it all the more impressive he came despite our sin? I mean, he made every possible allowance just to be near us. And that's the first truth I want to draw across for you today. God. God. Yes, he's powerful and distant. And yes, we may be sinners, but the heart of God, the heart of God is to be near us, to be present. God is present. That's the first truth. God isn't absent among his people. No, he walks with us. As we sing in the song, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Let's look at the second truth. Again, with Doubting and Elijah. I imagine him now bringing up a second objection and saying, okay, fine, okay, Yahweh is present. But how can I know that's a good thing? There are many bad kings present. King Ahab was certainly there to bring Israel into ruin. What makes this king any different? How do I know his rule will be righteous? In more recent years, um, our world has become a world that desires righteousness and justice. We see racism. We hear about crimes committed in residential schools, uh, the wars across the world. We cry out for wrongs to be made right. Righteousness. And while I believe that outcry is noble and good, well, no, sorry. I believe that outcry we have is noble and good because God made us to yearn for good. But while that's good, I honestly don't think it's being done always the best way. And I have reasons why. First off, we can't always decide, uh, we can't agree upon what's good and what's evil. People take up many different banners. LGBTQ, residential schools, abortion, Roe versus Raid. To be sure, some of them are truer than others, but others are sincere but misguided. And secondly, Even if our cause is good and true and noble, we are just not capable of carrying it out because we're limited, sinful beings. We simply don't have the power to administer justice as we'd like to. But this is why we can be glad and rejoice. As we read in verse 2, continuing on, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, See two things. One, it's his foundation. Yahweh is the perfect embodiment of righteousness and justice. It's it's foundational to who he is. He alone discerns the scales of right and wrong. And secondly, it's the foundation of his throne. His, His throne. He does not cry out powerlessly for justice behind the television screen of his lazy boy. No, he administers righteousness and justice with power from his throne. We can trust in the reign of God. He will do what is right for his kingdom and its citizens. His righteousness is foundational to who he is, and he is powerful enough to carry out his will. And that's the second truth. He is not a king who lets the streets of his kingdom rot. He is a righteous and just king. Now again, doubting Elijah Elijah, as thorough as he is might still object, okay, so your king is present and he rules righteousness and justice inside his kingdom. That is commendable, but what good is it if his foes surround the four corners outside his kingdom. Righteous and just was the reign of King Josiah, but one fatal arrow from from an an Egyptian archer and everything that was built upon that moment crumbled. Yahweh may desire justice, but is he a protector? And again, that's that's a fair objection because the truth is we do have enemies in this world. Um, For us... Our foes are Satan and sin. If Satan had free reign to run amok, he would cause us a great harm. And if sin had free reign, it would choke our hearts and dry our souls. So the question is, who will protect us from Satan and who will protect us from sin? But let's look at verse 3. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. Not only is Yahweh present with his people, not only does he rule with righteousness and justice, but he also defeats his foes, and the people are delivered, and no one can usurp his throne. That's the third truth. God is not someone who hides behind stone walls while the villages are ransacked. He defeats his foes and protects his people. As for Satan, <laughs> He's fighting a losing battle. Yes, he, he's still fighting, but only as somebody, like, he's fighting like a cornered animal. And, and, and God, he has victory in the bag. God would deliver us from him. And also, sin has no power over us. God is greater than all of our sin. Light outshines the darkness. You don't have to fear Satan, and you don't have to fear the sin in your hearts. God protects us. It's promised that one day, like, God will send Satan to hell, and he's not, Satan's not in hell with a pitchfork working in cahoots with God. Um, Satan isn't going to be in hell, and it's going to be as painful for him as anyone else. And he will also save us from our sins. He will refine us from our sins with fire. It says in Hebrews 12, 29, God is an all-consuming fire. Okay, now Elijah might again remark, okay, a good and powerful king is finally among our people, but how will they even know it? Will the people even flock to him? So often have we been attracted to the rule of men like Absalom, that foul king of David. What good is a king if people don't even know it? What good is a king if the kingdom doesn't follow him? Well, again, let's see in verse 4. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. You see, God's reign is evident and as and 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 god as he inspired fear and followers on mount sinai he still inspires us today you see god you conclude god from all of creation every lightning bolt is administered every wave of the ocean ordered every volcanic eruption was commanded the earth trembles at his presence It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, from since the beginning of creation, God's invisible qualities have been clearly known from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Deep down, down, we know that he's real. We know God is there. No one can deny his existence. Only the atheist does. But the atheist, although he's been... um, prophesying the end of religion for the past 200 years, atheism remains the minority in this world. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, only a fool says there's no God. An atheist will tell you two contradictory things. One, there is no God. And two, I hate him. But we know God. We know he reigns. His lightning lights up the world. And so, we respond like the rest of created order does. Or we should. We should respond with fear and trembling. Proverbs 1, seven says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the fourth truth. God inspires his people. And still, doubting Elijah might object How wonderful is this king. He's present, he's righteous, he protects, he inspires, but it's just lightning in a bottle. Sadly, there was only one King David, and how short are the reign of kings in the grand scheme of things. But again, we could respond in verse 5. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. What's the meaning of this? Well, mountains are unmovable. You cannot destroy a mountain, um, and it also takes a lot of effort to climb it. Um, Life comes and goes, but mountains remain unmoved. But compared to Yahweh's rain, mountains melt like wax candles. That's a crazy picture. This is like the slow process of erosion, the trickling of water will level a mountain before God's rain is over. God's rain will never be over. It's forever. It's eternal. And that's the fifth truth. God's reign is not short. He reigns forever. Finally, I think Elijah's gonna have one more objection. He's gonna say, okay, so he's a great king, this I see. But, is he the true king? King Herod the Great sat on the throne, but there was not a drop of true king's blood in his, in, his, in his veins. He was an imposter. How can I know this is the true king? Finally, it says, verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. From the beginning of creation, God has been the rightful ruler. No one else. All of creation admits this. And one day, all people will see his glory as well. He alone deserves our worship and praise. And all other, as, as we read also in verse 7, all other claims to the throne, all idols, are false. And all these idols one day will be put to shame. Yahweh is king. Yahweh Reigns forever. Okay. And finally, I picture doubting Elijah, exclaim, that's the king. That's the king. That's who I would bend my heart to. But grant me this one last thing. Show me this king. I want to see him you tell me of his presence, but let me see past the clouds and thick darkness. I want to see this king with my own eyes. And friends, if if, if and Elijah was actually granted access past the fire and the thunder and the clouds and the thick darkness, you know what he would see? He would see a manger, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. For you see, when Israel witnessed God on the mountain, that was only the first theophany. There would be a second theophany, a greater one, by means of a deep and mysterious riddle. God became like us. He became human. That age-old problem, that separation between us and God, the thick darkness and clouds that separated us, that prevented us from seeing Him, or or rather, it, it, it actually, I would say, better still, it protected us from being overwhelmed from His holy presence. It was bypassed by the only way possible. God became human. While no human could make anything in God's image or we would break the second commandment, God was able to make himself in human likeness. This is a, a, a mysterious and great reversal. All along, uh, the human image was the only uh, suitable vessel for God. And it was because God originally made humans in his image, as we read in Genesis. And so Jesus Christ became Emmanuel, God with us. And so now today, Psalm 97 rings truer, the, truer than it ever has been, when we, uh, it rings truer than it ever was in the assembly of Israel, or when it was recompiled by Ezra the scribe. Jesus is the true king from the line of David. Jesus was present among his people by becoming human and living among us. Jesus taught and lived with righteousness. Jesus delivered us from our enemies by defeating sin on the cross. Jesus reigns forever by rising from the grave and now sits on the throne of heaven forever. Jesus inspires our hearts by giving new hearts to us, to follow him forever and ever. And I know those of you who are Christian know this to be true. You know that Jesus is your king. You know that. And Jesus, he is the perfect embodiment of Psalm 97. Jesus is my king. And my question for you guys is, is Jesus your king? Have you bent your heart to Jesus? Have you put your trust in him? Do you rejoice in him? Do you see him and say everything else compared to this world is nothing compared to the surpassing riches of knowing Jesus? And if Jesus is your king, there's three things we should do. One, we should rejoice. Because Christians, there's something unique about us. We have hope. We have a hope that is in cannot be uh, cannot be snuffed out. You cannot snuff out our hope because our hope is is in Christ, who reigns forever and defeated all things, all sin. And secondly, because Christ is our King, if Christ is our King, we should fear Him. Not like one afraid of like spiders on the ground, but like one who reveres a king, one who gives reference to him, or sorry, wrong word, reverence. <laughs> um, think of it like when you approach any king in this world, you're not gonna approach him in your pajamas. You're gonna show your, your due respect There's going to be an awe inspiring moment. How much more for the King of Kings? And thirdly, as we read um, in verse 10, let those who love the Lord hate evil. We're going to change our lives. We're going to turn from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We're going to try and live our lives right. We're going to hate the things of, of, of this world, the things that are evil. And we're going to try and live in light of Jesus and his teachings. We're going to say, that is the best possible thing for me to do. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. So again, I ask you, have you made Christ your king? Have you made Christ your king of your heart? Have you trusted in him to defeat your enemies, to defeat sin and death? And do you put your hope in his resurrection that one day, you're going to live forever. That's the hope of the Christian. It sounds really weird when I say it like that. You're going to live forever, right? But, but, but think about it this way. He died, and then he rose again. If someone rose from the dead, if someone rose again and then says, I live forever, you have to be wondering, how is this possible? And he did that, and then he pioneers that path for us. He says, all who trust in me, may live again. That's the hope of the Christian. And I hope this Christmas season, it wouldn't simply be about gifts and presents and Santa Claus, but the true meaning of Christmas that you would find would be knowing that Christ Jesus is your King.